You're listening to TIP. On today's show, I have certified financial planner David Flores Wilson to talk about investing, retirement accounts, budgeting, and student loans. David is not only a certified financial planner, but he is also a chartered financial analyst, a certified divorce advisor, a certified exit planning advisor, and certified college financial consultant, while being named one of Investopedia's top 100 financial advisors as a senior wealth manager at Watts Capital in New York City. While we don't talk about individual stock picks necessarily throughout this episode, you're not going to hear buy Apple or buy Berkshire Hathaway. What you do hear is conversation about topics that lead to a strong financial base that you need to become a successful investor. And we talk about that a lot here on the show, but I'm also very passionate about helping people build a strong base and a strong foundation so that they can grow and become better investors because they don't have to worry about that foundation. So I think my conversation with David today sheds a lot of light on those topics that people need to master and have questions about. So I hope you enjoy this conversation with David Flores Wilson. You're listening to Millennial Investing by the Investors Podcast Network, where your host, Robert Leonard, interviews successful entrepreneurs, business leaders, and investors to help educate and inspire the millennial generation. Hey everyone, welcome to this week's episode. I'm your host, Robert Leonard, and with me today, I have David Flores Wilson. Welcome to the show, David. Thanks, Robert. Wonderful to be here. Looking forward to chatting. Tell us a bit about your background and how you got into financial planning. So, I took a job out of college and and started doing investment banking. And to be honest, it wasn't a big passion I had for that industry, but you know, I was kind of making my way as a junior guy and learning sort of a lot about investment banking. And there was one of those sort of long nights, uh, maybe like a Tuesday or Wednesday night at 10 or 11 o'clock at night. And I'd been taking the CFA exam, you know, maybe I was on level two or so. And one of my coworkers comes by and says, Hey, you know, well, you've been taking this CFA exam. You know, why don't you help me with my 401k? And so rather than finishing up the work I was supposed to do, you know, I rolled up my sleeves and was like, okay, well, you know, this is how you should allocate. And then, you know, another week or two came by, another coworker came by and, and asked the same thing. And, and then kind of word got around the office. And I even sort of developed this rent versus buy spreadsheet that, that got kind of sent around the office a couple of times. And, you know, essentially financial planning became my hobby. And, and so, you know, eventually I decided to make my, my hobby my career and I transitioned from investment banking to financial planning. What have you found throughout all your experience working with these individuals? What do you think that most people miss when it comes to their personal finances? A lot of people sort of research different techniques and strategies, and that's important, right? So I think that the levers of how we sort of advance the, the plot of financial planning is important, right? You're saving, investing, protecting what you have, and so on. And I think some people also get that setting goals and trying to achieve those goals through financial planning is important. but I think taking a step back, what are your values, right? And I think that's what people sometimes don't look inward and say, hey, okay, well, what are my values? What's most important to me? And then let's have alignment between the goals I'm trying to accomplish and then how I'm getting there through these sort of financial behaviors. And so I think people should be regularly kind of just, okay, well, taking a step back and say, okay, well, well you know, what are my values, right? What are the 10, 20 most important things to me? And am I living a financial life that aligns with that? Have you found it difficult to help individuals, specifically probably at the beginning, but have you found it difficult to help them 
and really understand or get them to believe that their finances is really up to them and you can't give them a specific answer or a specific solution. Because I think a lot of times people come and want the exact answer, like tell me exactly what to do. But as a finance professional, I know it's it's difficult to do that because everybody's situation is different. Everyone has a higher or lower risk tolerance. Everybody has a different time horizon. So it's difficult to give just one piece of advice. Have you found that difficult? I definitely think that you know a lot of the people we work with were sort of explaining the logic behind some of our recommendations. And so like most things in financial planning, there's sort of, you know, there might be two competing reasons, right? So maybe there might be the purely economic reason, and then there might be a behavioral finance reason that we're doing something, right? So I think that maybe like, for example, emergency funds, right? So the purely economic thing is to, yeah, to, to fully invest and so that you minimize that opportunity cost. But at the same time, you know, that doesn't work when you have you know, a dire emergency and you need that money right away. And you, know, you have to think about, well, should I be selling my stocks or my bonds? And so you know, it's less economic to keep some cash drag and to keep some money in a checking account, but it's there when you need it for those sort of emergencies. I'm also a finance professional. I'm not a financial planner, but I had started down the CFA path as well. I also have a different financial designation, so I'm pretty familiar with a lot of them. But you have one that I haven't heard of, and that's the Certified College Financial Consultant. So using that, what advice would you give to someone in the audience who is wondering if they should get an advanced degree and if it's worth it in today's world? Yeah, we could play alphabet soup with all these different designations coming out nowadays, right? That's sort of a newer one out in the marketplace. And I think that the reason I went through the coursework is because the practice I, I work with is we're focused on the different life events. And I think that's where the, the real stress is in people's lives. And you know, whether it's getting married or having kids or you know, buying or selling a business, there's, there's some real value to add in those sort of very stressful times. And, and if people don't make mistakes, you know, they can really move the ball forward when it comes to financial planning. So you know, when it comes to the grad school situation, I think that we want people to be you know, pretty intentional about the financial implications of it. Not that, you know, because people go to grad school for a variety of different reasons and there's lifelong learning is a wonderful goal and, and as well as sort of, you know, that sort of uh, self-fulfillment. And, and, but I do think that people need to be intentional about, okay, what's the rate of return, you know, the return on investment on, on this sort of very expensive investment, right? And so doing real research around the internships that are available in their program, the job placement, how much money do people make out once they graduate from that program, whether it's a master's program or a PhD program, and then looking at the cost of that and the expected income and you know, running projections and not just looking at the grad school part of it, but you know, can that person achieve realistically all the different goals that they want to have, at least that they know that they want to have, whether that's having kids, sending those kids to college, retiring at a certain age. And so you know, we really think that people should be looking at, okay, well, how much debt will you have coming out of it? And, and let's get the most of these financially when you're kind of looking at the landscape of different schools. I'm glad you mentioned calculating the return on investment that you're getting for making that large investment. When somebody starts to think about this, how do they calculate that? What numbers are they using? And maybe it's not specific, and maybe you're not going to say, I'm going to earn a 12.7% return on that investment of getting a graduate degree. But in general, how would somebody go about thinking of what their return is going to be on that degree? It is definitely easier if, if someone has a background in spreadsheets or they have the financial software available to them. But not that the, the numbers should 
you know, the quantitative part of it should overrule all the qualitative things and benefits and of going to grad school. But it's a, a question of, okay, well, you, you have a certain assumptions about the cost in, in sort of the year one and year two or however long the program is. And then, you know, what's sort of the net present value, right? We recommend people do a net present value calculation on various programs and be realistic about, well, if you're going to enter this program in a particular school, well, then realistically, you might stay in that region after the graduate program. Because I think sometimes people are looking at expenses and costs in you know, maybe the state they live in now, which might be less expensive than the school that they go to and where they'll end up continuing their career afterwards. So I think the real thought around you know, what they will do post-graduate school and you know, rather than sort of saying, hey, uh, I just want to shake things up and go to grad school. Because I think that's, that's a luxury people had 10, 20, 30 years ago. And as well, for people to go into undergrad as well, it's the cost of education, higher education has gone up so much higher than inflation, than wage growth, that we can't really use the same framework that we used 20 years ago, 30 years ago, because grad school prices are dramatically higher than, in many cases, the expected rate of return. What are some of the other topics that you discuss as part of your role as a college financial consultant? Yeah, I think that when it comes to my use of that designation, it has to do with parents sending their kids to undergrad. And so there's, there's sort of this thinking about, okay, well, a lot of our industry, I think, has done a disservice to, to many families, right? So when it comes to funding higher educations, I think a lot of times the advice has been, okay, we'll put money in a 529 and good luck to you. I think that there's ways to sort of save on the cost of college and doing the research, all these different schools before you ever set foot on campus. Because I think that whether it's undergrad or grad school, you know, these schools, higher education is a big, big business. And so they are highly skilled at developing an emotional connection with the prospective student and getting people to enroll in schools they just can't afford, right? And so you know, before everyone's stepping foot on a school, you want to know what the finances are, what the expected rate of return are. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey everyone, it's Patrick, your host of Millennial Investing. Every year, my buddies and I do a guy's trip to escape the cold and dreary Ohio winters. Once we pick our destination, without fail, we all jump on Airbnb and find an incredible place to stay. We just got back from an amazing trip in Palm Springs, California, and our Airbnb home was a huge part of creating memories we'll never forget. I loved it so much, I'm taking my family back to Palm Springs for spring break, and we're staying in an Airbnb home my kids fell in love with and picked out themselves. While I was there, I had the realization that my own home could be an Airbnb. It's an excellent way to earn some extra cash, whether you're saving up for your next vacation, paying off some bills, or investing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. That's airbnb.com slash host. Hey guys, have you ever wondered if there's an AI tool like ChatGPT specifically built for the stock market? A tool that not only does the research and analysis for you, but also allows for dynamic discussions? Well, wonder no more. Meet Meka, your AI-powered stock research assistant, now enhanced with real-time stock data. Let Meka do the heavy lifting for you to significantly reduce your research time. And the best part, Meka is 100% free. Ask Meka questions like, Explore the financial health of Apple through a summary of its balance sheet. Compare the financial statements of Apple and Tesla. What is the analyst price target for Microsoft? 
What is the social sentiment analysis of Amazon and millions of other queries right at your fingertips? Visit Meka.com. That's M-E-Y-K-A.com. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com slash millennial investing. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com slash flagship. This is a paid advertisement. All right, back to the show. Our audience is obviously targeted towards millennials. And so most of the people listening to the show today probably aren't parents with children that are college age or going into college soon. So they may not need to know necessarily what's best for them in terms of saving for retirement for their children yet. But as a lot of the audience is young, they might even be going into college soon or they might be in college. So I want to talk about some of the best ways that they should think about funding their college. Because if you mentioned that a lot of people are misguided on how their parents should fund it. So I think if we can get the audience in the right frame of mind and understand where their parents are coming from, that might help them a little bit in terms of funding their own college. So how should someone that's going into college or might need to pay for the next two or three years of college, how should they think about that? Yeah. So I think that it sort of starts with, okay, well, let's assess your financial resources. Let's see how those resources fit in the various formulas, the FAFSA, to come up with sort of an expected financial aid package that you might get, and then compare that to the schools you're going to, and then develop a budget. I think that people should develop a budget where you're going to come out of school with no more than the first year's salary that they're going to earn once they graduate, at least when it comes to undergrad. And same thing with parents not having more than a whole year salary of debt once once the child graduates. And so, because every sort of $50,000 of debt is approximately a $500 payment for 10 years. And so if you take that same $500 a month in payment over and you invest it, that same student could have a million dollars once they're 65. So it's so impactful how much debt you're going to put on the balance sheet. So I think that you know, there's just so many diamonds in the rough when it comes to schools that a lot of times people are just kind of looking at the you know, US News and World Report rankings and kind of basing their decisions on, okay, well, let's try to get in the best school possible, quote, you know, air quotes, best school possible according to the rankings, when there's vast differences in quality within schools by major, by degree, and some schools for example, make it a priority to get schools students out in four years. And I think you know the surest way to add another 25% to undergrad is to go the fifth year, right? And there's some schools that actually want you to go to the fifth year because it's more revenue, where other schools are they're systematically trying to help students get their classes, get them out within four years. And there's some schools that are really good about placing student, students once they graduate, and others where it's, it's not really a focus of theirs. So that's kind of how we think about it. I think there's when it comes to undergrad, sometimes there's people can be intentional about, okay, well, you know, if they have higher than average SAT scores and they got a, an average financial aid package, well, that means you can kind of go back and leverage the offer and say, hey, well, we beg you to consider sharpening your pencil and giving us a better offer. And that's where sort of applying to different schools that compete against each other might help. 
And then, you know, it's sort of a different set of analysis once people graduate with these student loans. And you know, how do you think through about paying them down? And, and what are your goals there? And Let's talk about those strategies a little bit. That was going to be my next question. For someone that's graduating college soon, or maybe they graduated a couple of years ago, how should they best tackle their student loans? So it's students are going to have different goals, right? So some students are just focused on cash flow and want the lowest monthly payment possible. And others, they want to sort of increase net worth and sort of minimize interest costs over the lifetime of the loan. And others are going to focus on public service loan forgiveness. And so, but to speak generally, if you're sort of a high income graduate, relative to the debt you have, well, then that person's strategy is going to involve most likely overpaying debt and prioritizing higher interest rate debt over low interest rate debt. Or if you sort of have low income relative to the amount of debt you have, you might pay your debt slowly, kind of look at income-driven repayment methods, and then sort of save for the tax consequences of your debt being defeased after 20 years if it's taken away one of these income-driven repayment programs. So it's going to be a little different depending on the situation. I think that regardless of the situation, people can sort of use the general framework of, okay, well, we meet a lot of people that actually don't know what their student loans are all about, right? So going through the National Student Loan Database and, and getting their credit reports and really cataloging what kind of loans they have. Is it federal? Is it private? And then going from there, if it's private, well, then let's get the promissory notes and understand the terms of each one and, and then look at refinancing options on the private side and potentially consolidation on the federal side. My next question is one that is often debated in the personal finance world. So I'd like to get your opinion on it so that the audience can hear just varying different perspectives and make the best decision for them. Do you recommend millennials who have student loans invest while they're paying off their student loans? Or should they wait to invest until they've paid off their student loans completely? That's a good question. I think that there's sort of the push and pull there between sort of the two factors, right? So there's, there's sort of this purely economic capital allocation decision. Okay, well, what can grow my net worth the most? And so sometimes that involves, okay, well, if we expect the market to earn 8% over long periods of time, and I have debt over 8%, well, then it's a no-brainer. I should spend every dollar paying off debt. But then there's also this sort of behavioral effect as well that we want to look at. It's, it's habit forming to start investing early. And I think that, so that's where, you know, if it's a very, very small level, I think people should get in the habit of saving and investing, whether that's $10, $20, $50 a month. And then in conjunction with that, come up with a strategy to pay down their debt. So I don't want to get too dogmatic when it comes to sort of, okay, pay it off or to start investing. I think that the answer probably is in stages, right? So you probably should put together an emergency fund. And then and then you focus on, if you had debt over 10%, well, yeah, that's a no-brainer there. Let's focus on getting all your debt paid off that's over 10%. And then maybe the third stage of that is investing in the company 401k if you have a match and then allocating capital until you've sort of maxed out the match there. And then going back and focusing on debt and then also starting to invest a little bit more, right? So if you were starting with 25, maybe it's time to kick it up to $50 a month. The emotional component of that is such a big piece that I don't think a lot of people think about because there's some people that are might have loans at 5-6% that aren't necessarily super high interest, but that keeps them up at night and they just don't like having that debt. And so if it makes you feel that way, then paying off that debt has a, an emotional or qualitative value to it that makes it even better than the quantitative value that you might get from just earning a higher rate of return in the market. And then there's some other people who 
are more like me, I guess you could say. And and I don't necessarily mind having the debt. I actually, what I did, my strategy was because I had some student loans. And what I did was I bought an investment property, a rental property, and then I just used that cash flow to cover all of my student loans. And so now somebody else is paying my student loans and I don't have to pay for it. And by the time the property's paid off, all my student loans are paid off. And you know, having the debt doesn't bother me because somebody else is paying for it. So there's a lot of different ways you can go about it. You really hit the nail on the head in terms of you have to do what works for you. And, and there's some broad economic principles at work here, but there's many different paths to sort of financial independence, right? And, and it looks like you, you found a, a really good one. Yeah, so far it's been working out really well for me. So thanks to the, the huge popularity of the FIRE movement, which is the financial independence retire early community for those who haven't heard of it yet, I'd argue that now, probably more than ever, people are interested in reaching financial freedom and are focusing on their retirement. Are the strategies of old going to work for the millennial generation going forward? Or are there new ways to save and prepare for retirement that need to be implemented by today's generation? I think in terms of the strategies and tips, the levers are they're the same, right? So that's sort of the five levers of financial planning, I think, are always going to be there, right? Saving, investing, protecting what you have, minimizing taxes, managing debt correctly. And so I think when it comes to FIRE more specifically, there's definitely some secondary effects and maybe some hidden risks people should also consider you know, as they're trying to reach sort of financial independence and really early and, and sort of leaving the workforce. One thing to think about is that the social security is your benefit is based on the highest 35 years, right? And so as well, the later years are weighted more than the earlier years, even though they're all indexed. And so, you know, if you're only going to work to 55 or so, you know, may not get those full 35 years and get that sort of f- that free money from the government that you especially, you know, social security money is is very valuable given that, you know, some of it might not even be taxed. It comes in a time when expenses are lower. A lot of people just don't see it as an asset. And so as well, there's sort of the, the hidden risk of, okay, well, there might be unexpected inflation or what we've seen over the last decade or two is high inflation in healthcare and higher education, but where will the next acceleration inflation be? And that's sort of hard to combat if you've left the workplace. But I think that we see more and more people kind of stepping out of the workplace, going back in and living very fulfilled lives and, and reaching financial independence. And, and that's wonderful. I think that we just have to be aware that you know, it's a very dynamic business world and some more and more industries are getting disintermediated. And so I think that the, the way to combat that is to is a sort of commitment to lifelong learning and maintaining relevant skills right, as people kind of move in and out of the workplace. I think that's what's fundamentally different. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey everyone, it's Patrick, your host of Millennial Investing. Every year, my buddies and I do a guy's trip to escape the cold and dreary Ohio winters. Once we pick our destination, without fail, we all jump on Airbnb and find an incredible place to stay. We just got back from an amazing trip in Palm Springs, California, and our Airbnb home was a huge part of creating memories we'll never forget. I loved it so much, I'm taking my family back to Palm Springs for spring break, and we're staying in an Airbnb home my kids fell in love with and picked out themselves. While I was there, I had the realization that my own home could be an Airbnb. It's an excellent way to earn some extra cash, whether you're saving up for your next vacation, paying off some bills, or investing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. That's airbnb.com slash host. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. 
For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com slash millennial investing. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found on the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com slash flagship. This is a paid advertisement. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Everything seems to be more expensive these days. I've noticed this at my own businesses that I've run. You'd be wise to find proven ways to cut costs and boost performance at the same time. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash mi. netsuite.com slash mi. That's netsuite.com slash mi. All right, back to the show. Now, I want to talk a bit about retirement accounts because I don't think it's ever too early to start investing in retirement. So a Roth retirement account offers great tax advantages that are unmatched by many other programs or accounts. What makes them such powerful accounts? Roth IRAs or Roth 401ks, I mean, they're fantastic. Once the money goes in, it grows tax-free and the distributions are not taxed. You know, that being said, you know, we like to see people diversify a little bit when it comes to their type of account that it goes into in retirement. You know, the tax laws are changing what it seems like every year now. We just had another more changes to retirement laws in, in late December and then of course the TCGA in 2017. And it's very possible that they may change the rules on the Roth one day. So the Roth IRAs are fantastic in that you have some distributions you can take, whether that's from higher education or your first time home. And we even recommend that when people have kids and the kids have summer jobs, that means earned income. And so even they can have Roth IRAs. And so we recommend a lot of times sort of people in their early 20s kind of entering the workforce to really dive into those Roth IRAs because they progress in their careers. They might be not eligible for any more because there are income limitations, even though those are indexed. But as people are making more and more money, they might not have opportunity to invest in a Roth IRA. And you know, not everyone has a Roth 401k at work either. So, One of my favorite features about a Roth IRA is that the contributions that you make to the account are with you can withdraw them at any time tax free penalty free you can't remove the gains but anything that you've put in for a contribution you can take out so do you see that as a powerful benefit of this type of account 
And do you think it's a potential opportunity for somebody to use that as a an emergency fund? I've heard some people throw that around. I don't personally use it that way. And to this date, I haven't had to withdraw those contributions, but it seems like it could be a powerful thing. So do you see people using that as an emergency fund? And is that a good strategy? That is one possibility. I think that I do feel that emergency funds should be liquid and relatively safe. And so I think that the nature of Roth IRAs is that you kind of want to put your riskiest investments in there because you know they have the most appreciation potential and then because you won't pay tax on those again. So you want to get the most investments that give you the biggest gains and put them in the, the Roth IRAs. And so sometimes we recommend that you put the emerging markets, for example, exposure that you have in Roth IRAs. And so if you're going to do something like that and be, it might not be the best use of your emergency fund, just given that, okay, you don't want to be thinking, okay, well, what's going to happen to my overall asset allocation if I take my money from the Roth and how much of that was earnings versus contributions? I think I'm a big believer that you you have to keep it simple with things like that. And emergency funds, are they're very unique to the situation. But I think the sort of overarching thing is that you kind of want them to be easily accessible and relatively safe. Unless you know you kind of reach the financial independence portion of your life and where you can almost self-fund and you don't have to put very much in a sort of a liquid investment emergency fund. For those who might not be familiar, can you tell us the difference between a Roth retirement account and a traditional retirement account? In a traditional retirement account, let's traditional IRA or traditional 401k, any contributions to those accounts are they're pre-tax, right? So you don't pay taxes, income tax on those contributions. In a Roth IRA, you're taking after-tax money and then you're putting in the account and then it's never taxed again. And so when you think about it, the regular IRA, you have to pay taxes when you distribute the money and you know that'll be after 59 and a half. And so in some ways you want to put into the regular IRA when you're kind of hitting your peak earning years. But at the same time, you know you want to be also putting in your uh, Roth IRA because you'll never pay taxes on the gains again. And so it's kind of interesting as, as I don't work with that many retirees. Most of the people I work with are in their 30s and 40s. But the people that I work with in their 70s and 80s, they all sort of they have to take these required minimum distributions of regular IRA balances that they have every year. And they all sort of groan about it, right? It's just like, oh, I have to, I have to pay the government now. And so it, it seems like for many of the people I work with, it's the last money they ever want to use. And so they frankly wish that they had bigger Roth IRA balances, but they have very large regular IRA balances. Sometimes I have to remind them that you've got a deduction on that very large IRA <laughs> along the way, but sometimes they tend to forget that. Yeah, I actually worked at a bank for a few years when I was in college and we sometimes had to do those distributions, those RMDs, those required minimum distributions from the retirement accounts for some of our our members and I remember they they all had the same type of reaction. They didn't really want to touch that money and then when they had to, they they didn't really like it. So, definitely understand where you're coming from on that. At what point does someone start to need a financial advisor? There's some research that we've seen around the type of people that build wealth. And some of the factors are what you would guess they'd be, right? So people that view shopping, for example, as a task as opposed to as a hobby tend to build wealth. And people that believe budgeting is a tool as opposed to just you know something that should be dreaded uh, build wealth. And so one of the other factors that builds wealth in, in the research is that people that have planning behaviors, right? So 
know, there's some people that just don't need advisors. They can look at their situation objectively. They can be vigorous about learning the different strategies and techniques, and they can put a plan together and then implement it. And so when it comes to hiring an advisor, it's really just an assessment of is the value that this sort of outside party is going to bring, you know, by helping sort of advance the plot of your financial life, is that going to outweigh the cost? And so a lot of times, the people that we see, the impetus is these life events and getting married, having kids. And so the stakes are higher. And that's when there's more people involved in the situation. And and that's when they tend to come to our office. Assuming that someone has decided that they are going to work with a financial advisor, what are some of the most important things that they need to consider when deciding on which financial advisor to work with? When it comes to sort of the fundamentals, it's investigating that advisor's background and expertise and certifications and what's their approach and philosophy, you know, both on their, you know, how they work with clients, how they think about planning, how they think about investing. I think that as time goes on, someone should be able to get sort of a sneak peek in terms of what that client experience is with working with an advisor, whether that's through references or maybe the content they provide in the market. But I think that the biggest thing, at least in my opinion, is the objectivity of the advisor and are they going to be acting in the best interests of your situation? Those are some of the things to think about. And how about being a fiduciary? How important is that? I mean, it's my opinion that that's, it's very important. I think there's a lot of judgment calls when it comes to giving financial advice and putting portfolios together. So not acting in the best interests of the client, I, I don't know how... I've been a fiduciary since day one, so I, I don't really know how an advisor can do it without being a fiduciary, but there are people that are in a non-fiduciary capacity. And what exactly does it mean to be a fiduciary? So a fiduciary essentially means that the advisor acts in the best interests of the client and puts their interests first. And if not, they get in trouble by the regulator and could lose their certifications and other things. And we talked about briefly earlier that one of the hardest parts about personal finance is just the psychological and emotional components. So with that said, have you ever broken any of your own financial planning rules that you've set for yourself? Oh, you're going to put me on the spot. Yeah, I definitely have. And so I think that I think I mentioned earlier, there's different pathways to financial independence and success. I think you know, at a personal level, you know, I probably put too much concentration into real estate, sort of call that 13 years ago. I think that I put a large portion of my net worth in it. And there were some years where I was like, oh, wow, that's kind of feeling the pressure. I I changed careers from investment banking to being a financial planner. And I think that that's what's interesting about real estate, that you don't have to be right on the timing if long-term it's a good investment. Some other investments are not like that. But I think if you can kind of hold on when the demographics and some of the investment characteristics are right, then things are going to work out. So, But there were moments where, yeah, for sure, I felt like I made a mistake. After you made those mistakes, how did you get back on track? And how did you correct them so that it didn't happen again in the future? The important thing is to sort of learn from these mistakes and then at the same time, not make the opposite mistake, right? So I think sometimes when people are, they make a mistake, they might compensate by making the opposite mistake, right? So they might be too concentrated in a stock and then all of a sudden get burned by that. And from that point on, you maybe they're invested in a, a thousand different stocks and then you have the opposite problem and you're too diversified. It's too unwieldy and can't really be managed. So I just think that there's sort of these different categories, right? And so 
as long as you're doing a few of the things right, you're moving in the right direction. And the power of compound interest, it's just so powerful. And, and so as long as you're staying invested, as long as you're saving a good amount relative to your expenses, and then you're also kind of thinking about these other things like, you know, how do I protect what I have and, and manage debt and so forth. Which book or maybe financial expert that you've studied has had the biggest impact on you and your desire to help the world with financial planning? I definitely remember reading The Millionaire Next Door, sort of right out of college. I think that you know, shows you that kind of anyone can do it, right? And that achieving your financial dreams is, is kind of right there if you, you have the right discipline and the plan. I also read Rich Dad, Poor Dad in College, sort of, okay, well, let's look at the income side of it and, and making money through real estate. And so I had a stepfather and a father. And so I think from that book, I learned that, okay, well, there's different approaches and let's just kind of piece together these different philosophies and take from a little bit here and there. That's what I learned from that book. Gosh, I think David Swenson, I remember reading his investment books in my 20s and a lot of what he said made sense. And there's a lot of different things that guided my, my philosophies and sort of overall strategies as I help people. What is a piece of financial advice that you often hear given by other financial experts that you don't think is necessarily good advice? And how would you improve that advice to make it good? It's interesting because financial literacy is not really taught in the schools in a systematic way in this country. And it's, it's a tragedy. And I think that it's no wonder that people are sort of drawn to the financial influencers and media types and look to those type of people for a lot of their advice. And I think it's very motivating. And a lot of times, sort of the one size fits all advice can be very motivating, can get people moving and because it can make complex things very simple. But I will say that a lot of times, anyone listening to this podcast, your situation is different. So I think that many times applying some of the very dogmatic statements, you must save X percent every year, or you should not have any debt by this age. I think it's sometimes it's a, it's a disservice to, to people because their situation is different. And so I think people, sometimes it's just a little more complex than that. But I can recognize that people are adding a lot of value by having these rules of thumb. At the same time, we should be careful. David, thanks so much for your time. I think our conversation tonight is going to help get a lot of millennials on the right track and help answer a lot of the personal finance questions that they're probably having. So I think they're really going to enjoy this conversation. For those in the audience that want to go connect with you further, where can they go to learn more about you? They can find me on the Planning to Wealth blog. A blog, I try to provide some actionable content for people on various life topics. And so people want to talk further, they can reach out or uh, schedule a time to chat. Awesome. I'll be sure to put links to some of the different books you mentioned, some of the different topics we talked about, books related to that in the show notes, as well as the resources you just mentioned where the audience can go connect with you. That'll all be in the show notes. You guys can go check that out later. David, thanks so much. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much, Robert. All right, guys. That's all I had for this week's episode of Millennial Investing. I'll see you again next week. Thank you for listening to TIP. To access our show notes, courses, or forums, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decisions, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permissions must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.